Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with the Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. Our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon is Dr. Carrie Cunningham, who's an associate professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School and the section head of the Massachusetts General Endocrine Surgery Unit. Carrie's academic position and her many accolades, including her funded grants and her previous ranking as one of the top 50 tennis players in the world, are not among the reasons I am so honored to have her on the podcast. I'm honored because as a 2023 president of the Association of Academic Surgeons, Carrie gave the most profoundly courageous and vulnerable talk called Removing the Mask, where she shared her story and struggles with alcohol in front of several thousand people. Even more impressive is her dedication of her time as president to elevating our awareness and our commitment to changing our hidden approach to dealing with physicians who are struggling with any mental health problem. We all wear the mask in the world of surgery. Our surgical training and heritage compels us to wear a mask of being strong and resilient, even when we are not, and carries courage to shine light on the struggles that we all will face, either in our own personal lives or with colleagues at work, has cracked open the dark casket of shame and shined a light on our humanity and on our mental health struggles. I was present on the stage when she gave her presidential address. There were pauses and tears, and never have I seen someone with such courage talk about such challenging struggles in front of so many people, especially surgeons. But her talk was not a therapy session. It was about what she has learned and about how we can all go forward together to encourage us to take off the masks in our lives. Carrie's talk is on YouTube and it has received a staggering 55,000 views, a testimony to the power of her talk. And now I bring you Dr. Carrie Cunningham. Carrie, welcome to The Resilient Surgeon. It's a real honor and a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had just last week, the great pleasure of interviewing Todd Rose, who is the author of a book called Dark Horse, The Pursuit of Fulfillment. Uh, and it was at Harvard, and he, and he was head of the Dark Horse Project, where he studied the science of the individual. And in, in the book, he talks about this idea called the standardization covenant. And a covenant, of course, is a solemn binding agreement. And the standardization covenant is know your destination, work hard, stay the course, and success will be yours. Of course, what does success mean? That means typically wealth and status of some sort or another. And it's always a destination orientation. So of course, as you know, we we all go to, uh, us surgeons, we all go to college, then we get into medical school, 
and then residency, and we climb the rungs, and then we become an attending, and then we climb the ladder of the standardization covenant one rung at a time, always towards some destination. And of course, until we reach a final destination, you know, our death, right? So yeah. that is kind of what the standardization covenant looks like. And it it works. It really does work, you know, in in the end point of the the definition of success being, you know, money and and status generally. But what's so powerful about your story and mine, and in my opinion, that of so many of our colleagues uh, that fit this standardization covenant, and it says Lao, Lao Tzu said, and I don't know if I pronounced that right, but if you do not change direction, you may end up where you're heading, right? And in my work as a coach with surgeons, one of the most common and frankly, most devastating challenges surgeons seem to face is the loss of themselves in the course of climbing the standardization covenant ladder. This is my opinion, my kind of hypothesis, and it certainly seems to be true in so many of my colleagues' uh, lives. And what happens over time is, you know, we our true selves, our values, our priorities, and our preferences get buried under the rubble of our careers, assuming, of course, that we even ever really knew ourselves from the very beginning. Uh, and in your incredibly powerful presidential address to the uh, Association of Academic Surgeons entitled Removing the Mask, you briefly told your story of climbing the rungs of the standardization covenant as a professional world-ranked tennis player and as an incredibly successful academic surgeon. And I'd love to hear if you could tell us how your climbing the rungs in tennis and surgery played out and the impact on your life and to also get your reaction to this notion of losing losing one's identity and uniqueness as we climb the rungs of the surgical standardization covenant I so almost that's a bit started, of a long question there i almost started <laughs> taking notes i felt like a, a resident up there giving their first presentation and i needed to write it down so i'll try to make some comments because i you know you and i have discussed this a lot personally but um you know, been doing a lot of reading and this whatever covenant socialization covenant standard standardization, standardization covenant, covenant yeah um you know there are themes in many different disciplines and some religions and buddhism um that this is sort of living with intention right mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and the these are all my opinions let me yeah this is what we're here for that. this is why you're in the podcast <laughs> um and the ultimate goal changes Right, you said towards a path. I mean, ultimately death, obviously, but it, in a less morose way, um, you set your intention, and then you go into something like a ten-year career in tennis or a eighteen-year career in surgery, where you don't stop and look around and make mm -hmm. sure your goal is still the same. Mm -hmm. um, that's a moving target. So yes, I agree that you need to be setting your intention. Um, every day. And there yes. are, there are many steps and there are long-term goals. And from what I've learned and life in general, it's rare that the ultimate goal is what you thought it would be when you started out. That's right. Um, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think intent is important. I think that, you know, what I've been through is I've realized in the two sort of careers I've already had, um, I failed to really call it a retirement from tennis, but it was. I had a five-year professional career. I, yes, I was only 21 when I retired, but um, I had a, a portion of time that I had to stop. I injured my wrist and I had to stop 
Um, I was traveling, you know, 30 weeks out of the year before that, uh, kind of like being a surgical resident. I was always tired, sleep deprived, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, jet lagged. And when I stopped to have my wrist operated on and then, you know, doing physical therapy to follow, um, I had time to, st- I was forced to stop and think. Sounds yeah. clear. Yeah, it sure and does. <laughs> during that period of time, I wound up taking some classes in college and realized like, wait, this wasn't necessarily, my my goal wasn't the same as what, what it was when I was 16 or maybe never, you know, I, I had... I got a lot of um, external validation for my my talent as a tennis player and my success, um, and so I just assumed that's that's what you did. I'm I why wouldn't you do that? No, you know, very few people can do this. Why wouldn't you choose to do that? Um, but I really missed school, and I really wanted to do something academic, and um, and so uh, it never in my even as a child, yes, I wanted to go play. I wanted to go play tennis in college. I really wanted to go to Stanford, which I wound up not doing because I turned pro. And um, so, yeah, my intent changed. Um, and then the same thing this past year, you know, I was, um, I was pushed to my limit. I should have known better. I was pushed to my limit um, with my depression and substance use. And I was sort of, not sort of, I was intervened on by my friends before something um, bad happened, either to Mm -hmm. myself or at work Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And I'm glad that they did. Mm -hmm. And that was a forced stop and look. And I can't say that was easy. (laughs) It was far from it. You've been through it. Um, But I really needed it. That was a, that identity struggle or that, you know, reassessing what that end point was, um, what is success? You know, I've said, and I've apparently developed some mantras, um, is that, um, success in academic surgery, um, takes on many forms, um, and is, is subjective. And I think success in life, um, is much more than success in just your career. And, um, you need to maintain that and work at that just as much as, uh, as you will, that you need to as a surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to unpack there. Um, one of the key things I like about what, uh, Todd Rose has defined is this idea of fulfillment versus success and personalized success being fulfillment. Uh, and that's following your natural individuality and uniqueness mm-hmm. on your terms towards the things that energize you and bring you a sense of well-being and accomplishment you know that's fulfillment and i think that's really a big dif- big difference in terms of how we live day to day versus pursuing an objective goal in the end uh not that goals are bad but they need to be held onto a little lightly i think you just touched on something um which we often do riffing um is that success is the response of somebody else to what mm-hmm. you're doing. Yeah. Um, it is someone else telling you that it is a reflection back from somebody else or an association or society or your parents or your spouse or whatever it is. But fulfillment has to come from within. Inside. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. And I'm going to keep using that now. Thank you. 
Yeah, no, no. And that's that <laughs> external validation. And it's so powerful. I mean, let's just go back and talk about tennis and then lead up to the surgical career and, and how you got into tennis and the external validation and the impact that that had on you. Because I think it's really important and a common yeah. struggle. Of course, many people aren't world-class tennis players, but you know, most people in surgery are very driven, succeeding individuals. And they've got a pretty glorious past typically of accomplishments. Yes. Um, I've thought a lot about this and even as a surgeon, it's difficult because you're so, you're so in it. You're yeah. to the exclusion of almost everything else in your life. Not almost basically everything else in your pretty life much. training yeah. uh, medical schools, similar. Um, and I used to think, oh, it's okay. Cause we're, this is the mastery point. And then, and then, then my life will start, you know, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Um, but with tennis, I think it was different because I was a kid mm -hmm. and, um, you know, when I started playing really competitively, I was on the order of nine or 10 yeah. and a child is, it's very hard. It's first of all, hard as an adult to, to establish what external validation is versus internal fulfillment. But as yeah, a yeah. kid, you know, you're, you're pretty much driven by that. And, um, and then on top of that, as an athlete, uh, especially an in individual sport, um, sort of trained to not show emotion. Mm -hmm. So it was, I think that's tough. Um, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of my, um, my friends, uh, who are tennis players and they've had similar experiences. Um, so that's a, that's a difficult thing to understand. And, um, that's a hard thing to learn. You have to, you have to want to learn that difference between fulfillment and success. And often you have to be pushed to a point where you need to understand the difference between the two, unfortunately. Yeah. And hopefully the push isn't too bad, you know, as it ended up being in our cases, you know, uh, yeah. because just like you, I spent three months in, in rehab. I had a break, a real break with my, my existence. And it was one of the most powerful breaks uh, of my life because it was the first time that I'd stopped running a hundred miles an hour and was forced to like do a, basically an inventory of my world and try and figure it all out. Yeah. And I think you'll remember, I have this vision of still going hundred miles an hour and there's a wall in front of you or Sisyphean, yeah. I don't know, Sisyphean, yeah. I can't pronounce it. But for the first, at least for me, three, four weeks, it was like me beating my head against the wall. Like I was like, yes. wait, no, I'm going to keep going and push through this. Yeah. And Somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, uh, we're off on a little bit of a tangent, but that's good. But when I first went into rehab, I was actually voted least likely to succeed by my fellow inmates because <laughs> <laughs> my attitude wasn't particularly sparkling at the time. Yes. Neither was yeah. mine when I arrived that my, <laughs> I still go to aftercare, um, uh, meetings with my with my colleagues my cohorts my inmates and uh yeah. they laughed the other day because i was talking about how happy i am and how fulfilled i am and i'm feeling joy and i'm laughing and they were like wait a second do you remember what you were like <laughs> yes, when you showed I up know, I know. angry and resentful and yeah that that was me that was me yeah. too and i think most physicians that end up in that circumstance that's the pattern that's the pattern and, you know, you, what you highlight there, both in tennis and the surgical career is, and especially at your young age of nine years old, where you have no idea of really what's going on. And you, you're being programmed by, you know, whoever's running the tennis thing, your parents, 
uh, and then in the surgical world, you're programmed by the current culture that you're in, mm -hmm. and then the snapping point happens. That's my thesis, you know, that mm -hmm. we we just end up being programmed, and it can be by a variety of circumstances. I was programmed by my difficult upbringing, mm -hmm. and then, you know, crawling out of that, and it instilled in, in me all sorts of beliefs and ways of thinking that, you know, I had to unwind. A lot of them very valuable, but not, you know, like any, many things, good until they're not, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, the, the title of your address was Removing the Mask. And, you know, it's a very powerful thing. Can you just tell us how you chose that title? And and then... It's a, I have to attribute this to Wen Shen, who's a, a very close friend of mine, who's an endocrine surgeon uh, out at UCSF, um, who is incredible at writing speeches. So he he was sort of guiding me along and, and he helped me come up with that. Actually, I think he just came up with that. Um, well, it was also at the time we were just getting over COVID. So it was, you know, a little cheeky. There were mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. to remove the mask. I think during COVID, a lot of people's internal struggles were exposed because they were stuck at home a lot. Yeah. I really yeah. think that's one indication or one reason for that. Um, every time I hear that, it, it still makes me a little anxious. Um, because removing that, you know, I had fine tuned as all of us to a certain extent, but especially surgeons in academia who are constantly trying to impress and be perfect and those other things, um, is to admit that you're not perfect. Yes. Right. And, yeah. um, it is utterly, it was terrifying to tell those things to a bunch of people mm -hmm. at the same time, it was very cathartic. Um, and, I personally think this concept of imposter syndrome is just that is people not being, not um, being honest with themselves and being authentic. Mm -hmm. And this misconception that um, discussing your weaknesses um, or struggles is somehow going to diminish how you're respected and viewed in the world. And my response to me doing what I did and I didn't, at that point, I didn't care what the response was going to be. I felt compelled to speak, but my response overall has been very supportive and um, at least from the people who have approached me, but many, many people have reached out to me um, to share their own stories, um, to ask how to change it, change the environment in their own institutions, which I'm going around talking a lot this year mm -hmm. for Good, good. Um, in and out of surgery. And um, I think that 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 fine line between who you are and what you've worked for and that just being a narrative and reminding yourself that your insides are not supposed to be compared to someone else's outsides. I think that's where this term or this, this feeling of imposter syndrome pops mm -hmm. up because everyone's mm -hmm. only showing their narrative in general. And um, your narrative is perfect, right? It's like being on social media. You, you put up the best pictures. You don't put up the ugly pictures. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think people need to remember that and try to bridge that gap a little bit. I think that creates loneliness. I know it does in me, um, not being authentic and not really expressing how I'm feeling. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of, you know, the surgical meetings, Um and and what they're like and you know everybody kind of dresses the same and we put on a, a mask when we're at the meetings and i i remember over and over just feeling lonely at those meetings you know and did, did, have you had that experience i mean 
Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. only in a, gr- a room full of people. Room full um, of people. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, again, I think it, it falls back to exactly that. Um, it's amazing how as soon as I approach a conversation with pretty much everyone now, um, you know, once you're in rehab, you get very comfortable sharing your life story with people. Uh, yeah, you, you sure do. <laughs> you can meet someone in a, you know, any recovery meeting and walk up and tell them, you know, about yeah. all of your psychiatric diagnoses in five minutes and you've never met yeah. them. So right. no, something it's, freeing it's shocking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's um, very freeing. Yeah. And then it's because also you're like, accepted. Wow. You know you're going to be yeah. accepted. That's totally accepted. That's yeah, compassion. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I got off topic. Where what were we talking about? Well, um, the you know, yeah, you, yeah, but you also mentioned the experience of giving the talk and uh, you know, how did that feel after the talk for you? What was what oh. was that like? Yeah. Because I, I, you know, the, to be there in person and to watch you give that very courageous talk was nothing short of spectacular. Yeah. Uh, you know, the first time that I'm aware of that anybody in any academic meeting has gotten up and told the truth about their lives in that level of detail and uh, authenticity. It was remarkable. So, I mean, I can just imagine, but how did it feel for you when you when you finished that um, standing up there in the podium? I'm always curious what it felt like in the audience, but what it seemed like when I got up there was um almost they I could feel my fear reflected back mm-hmm. to me and mm-hmm. that was palpable in, in getting started and the whole beginning of the speech where I, I really just couldn't start it was like yeah, yeah physically inhibiting so once I got started I knew I had you know this concept of perfection versus mastery I mean I knew I wanted to make that speech as good as it could be and I wrote it mm-hmm. for six months and I everything mm-hmm. I had learned that I wanted everyone else to know Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to put together, um, and for the first time, it wasn't me sharing my data. I didn't, yeah. I didn't have research to back it up. I didn't have, you know, cause I always felt like I had to have data to prove anything data. I was saying, right. You don't get up there without data. Yeah. Right. And it's really true. it was the first time I was like, you know what, these are my opinions and you know what, I do have the experience to say these things. Damn and right. so, you know, I finally got up there. I didn't know until that day, Michael, if I could get up there and I, and I had allowed myself to even up to that morning, not go through with it because Mm -hmm. first of all, my therapists were like, you know, this is, you're still in early recovery. Are you sure you want to do this? Um, but as I got going, I think you could notice, like I, I built and I felt like, yeah. yeah, And, um, it felt fantastic at the end. It felt free. I jokingly say now that if I ever date anybody, they're just going to have them have them watch watch the video and see if they're still interested afterwards. It's a um, great, great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, so I, you know, I it felt great. But at the same time, and I think this is an important thing for people, both if someone approaches you in a crisis, um, or the people who are around you when you go through this that aren't necessarily with you in the rehabilitation center, you know, and um, yep. to understand how much progress you've made. I think everyone, it was sort of not the first time maybe, but they didn't know how, it was a lot to absorb in their own lives. I think reflected in their own lives, people they have known um, in surgery, their family members, you know, a lot of people. Someone everywhere. Yeah. Talking about their, their parents, their kids, their themselves. Um, So I think it was, it was heavy for people. Um, And I, I, 
I kind of wanted it to be because I I didn't want to sugarcoat it because yeah. it certainly wasn't sugarcoated <laughs> this past year or two and a half years. It's already been an, almost a year and a half. Can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I there's a couple of key you know, things in what you said here. And one is the freeing, you know, it was very freeing. And what I like to say is I could breathe finally, you know, and it feels like I can breathe freely now because I've just told the truth and I'm not hiding it anymore. Mm -hmm. And the hiding is, was for me just based on shame primarily, yep. you know, uh, shame about everything and shame. Isolation is the, is the fire that stokes the, yep. the feelings of shame in a big way. And as you probably agree, I mean, so many of our colleagues live in emotional and uh, personal isolation with their struggles. Uh, yeah. And so for somebody like you to get up and tell the truth uh, opens the window for them to breathe also. And there's truth in everything that you've done. It's not just the addiction piece, it's the living piece and the struggles with depression, anxiety and all that. And so, you know, just once again, uh, the courage and uh, power that it took to give that talk. I, I, I'm so, I have so much admiration for it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the courage, the most important courage I had was to actually begin and go through the initial months of recovery. I'm going to get choked yeah. up. That was, yeah. that was yeah. a lot harder than giving that speech. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's the hardest part for people. And I'm, uh, I know that you can't force anyone to, to make that decision. That decision has to be internal, that mm -hmm. first step. And mm -hmm. there's, I can't think of any way other than showing how good it is on the other side um, to impress upon people, you know, yeah. I do yeah. want to add um, just because I think it's so important. I'm actually reading um, in the realm of hungry ghosts. I'm sure you've read that before. Um, no, I have not. Uh, Gabor Mate. It's it's a it's a, oh Gabor Mate, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh it's it's really an incredible book. Um, looking at first of all the neuroscience behind addiction, um, but really understanding that that it's the smoke and not the fire. And yeah. it, the true and how you approach people with it. There is a reason, there is something, some pain there. It is not for entertainment it is to make some sort of pain go away and um, always yeah always. and so you know i'm really <clears throat> trying to enforce when i'm going around is like if you think of the word addict now think of me not mm -hmm. the person you you had in your mind before yeah because this this is the face of addiction i there's no difference between me and other people that you've had this bias bias image in your mind yeah and i just i we need to start treating people with addictions, substance use disorders, with the same amount of compassion and humanity as we do for any other disease. Yeah, that's, oh, you're hitting a topic that's almost a PTSD-like trigger for me because, you know, it, mine happened 12, 13 years ago now, and 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 basically I was, um, uh, what's the right word here? I was just put, put out to pasture in a sense. Ostracized. Yeah. ostracized, you know, at Hazelin. And there, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of forces. And I'm not blaming anyone specifically, but it was the culture at the time, the lack of understanding how to deal with someone that has an addiction problem in medicine. It's a very complicated milieu, but the impact on me was devastating. And, you know, it was almost the 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 wood the kindling for potential suicide. And I and I'm I'm not being using any hyperbole here. I mean I know there were days when I thought the only way out of this is 
is death that I can see because the pain is so substantial and it's not going away. Yeah, so that's uh, that was that was quite the challenge and and I you know I remember and I you, you hear I mean if you had if you got cancer or you know something else happened to you you'd be getting cards flowers you know people would be reaching out and you know there I am with one of the worst events of my life and you know I'm in the deepest isolation you know with living with now a bunch of other drug addicts right you know and so. Mm -hmm. It was really, really, really difficult. And uh, simple acts of just saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you. You know, you're not alone. Uh, you know, just those little simple things just go so far to relieving some of that isolation. I mean, what are your thoughts about any of that? Yeah, I mean, I remember you telling me your story. And, you know, I'm sure there are many people who still feel that way and maybe aren't bold enough to approach me and tell me those things. But, you know, there have definitely been comments such as, you know, my, my chief problem, which I've had my whole life is depression. And, um, and um, this concept that, you know, maybe, maybe these, these, these people shouldn't have yes. the surgery in the first place, right? Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, basically a sign of weakness. Yeah. And, um, that, that really, that gets me a lot. Um, yeah. It's yeah. the people who, who succeed in surgery are, are pretty darn tough. Um, yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. I, I, I know, you know, there are still people, um, I was in a position and I also had a very supportive, um, boss, so to speak, and, right, and, institution right. and mentor, um, that I was, I was sort of, not sort of, I, I was protected. I knew, I knew I had, I didn't, I thought that I at least had support, whether I still didn't know if I was going back to work ever. Mm -hmm, that that mm -hmm. concept when you're like what you said, the choice between death and losing, you know, and, and taking a drug and or whatever it is, and alcohol is a drug. Um, those are the decisions people are making. Yeah, we yeah. know this isn't yeah. great right now. But my pain is so bad that, you know, maybe this is it's it's actually a very modicum poor substitute for normal coping mechanisms, but it's, it is a way for people to sustain an amount of pain. Unfortunately, you can't get better unless you stop it, but, but that's tough for a lot of people. And it changes your brain functioning for people who've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, I know. They say taught us that our brains get hijacked and you you lose your, your moral compass, everything. It really, yeah. it really goes, goes down to shitter, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the, uh, I'd like your thoughts on this. I mean, I gave a talk not long after I got out of rehab about the addiction, the struggles. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, that was the beginning of my healing. It wasn't just the, the treatment, but my ability to face it head on like that relieved the shame because I got up in front of people. What are your, mm -hmm. what is your reaction to that? Did, did it help you propel you in any way or was it well, part of the process? I've thought a lot about this recently, you know, as I've, it's amazing how I'm learning in recovery. And you told me this when you, when we first met each other in person, that it's not an, a set time. It's not, it's a complete, it's just being a human being and really focusing on becoming a better human being. Honestly, it's what everyone should be doing. Um, but the concept of uh, service, which is very prominent in both the um, the uh, Buddhist recovery programs as well as um, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, which I enjoy going to even more because they're the cool kids, you know, um, <laughs> and um, that there's a concept of service, right? And, and in most religions, service, right? Yeah, I yeah. think, especially in recovery, um, 
it'll, it's still, a, it helps you too, to help somebody else. This whole concept of having a sponsor is that you have a big brother or sister looking out after yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and it's connection. Connection is a cure for addiction. That's what everyone, connection is the cure for many, many, many things. It's, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it helped a lot with depression, anxiety, everything. Um, yeah. and so, and there's been shown to have physical health benefits from it. I mean, there's data, ex extraordinary Huge data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think part of that is, is self-fulfilling because you're being, you're being brutally honest with yourself when you're saying, this is what, this is what I am. It keeps you accountable mm -hmm. and, um, and hopefully empowers other people as well to feel like they're not alone. There are people like them and to bridge that, that wall between the narrative and the, and the internal self. So it sounds like it was an important part of your yeah. healing journey. Yeah. 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 And it, it, it continues to be, it's exhausting. And I say, now I'm on my, mm -hmm. um, sort of the sequel tour and I, I have to, it's, it's, a, it's tiring. It is emotionally. Um, yeah. and so I find myself spending a lot more time in solitude, not in loneliness, mm -hmm. but I, I realized through over time that yes, I can get up in front of some people and talk, but I, I, uh, rebuild or regroup in, um, privately. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's, mm -hmm. um, I'm learning that about myself that it, you can be alone and not lonely. And you can also yeah. get with a room full of people, as we said. Yeah. yeah it's like at the meetings, I, I remember that was one of the biggest things and most useful things that I learned after getting out of treatment because I didn't go back to clinical practice. And so I was a house husband for a while and I was alone all the time. And that was a brutal transition for somebody. I'm very extroverted and energetic. And, but I sat and I learned how to be alone and be still. And my God, that was like one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Right. Isn't Honest it? to God. Oh, so yeah. relieving. And to realize and to you actually internally have the power to feel relaxed and at peace. Yes. It, it makes you feel empowered. I feel like. Constantly not scratching some itch, you know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It really is miraculous. But yet I had to train myself to be able to do it, you know? Yes. Hard, yeah. hard work. And Very constantly. difficult. Yeah. That's why for me, meditation does that. Even if I do like this morning, 10 minutes, I'm like, it just sets the tone. Like, don't forget about this stuff. Yes. You have a lot of email and, you know, but um, Yeah. Uh, that's I, really I the truth yeah and it, you know i remember <laughs> when i was in hazel and, and you know we're just kind of chatting now but when you should when say I was that hazelton hazel was your facility you haven't said yeah that. yeah yeah. hazel was my facility <laughs> i know what my it is place. But... it was a 12-step program in northern <laughs> minnesota it's now the betty ford uh you know foundation um but you know my counselor you know uh hammered me about keeping a gratitude journal and keeping writing three things in it that you're grateful for every and you're day. like oh yeah. To me, I was like, do you understand? I was a full professor in bowed chair and now I'm a drug addict in rehab. And you think this is going to help? You know, <laughs> my answer was like, this is this is small stuff. I need bigger action items. And so I didn't buy into it until my daughter about a year afterwards sent me a video about the science of gratitude. And of course, the science caught me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to look into it. And I realized how important it was. And to set my day, it takes so little to set the right mindset and intention for the day with these simple practices. And it's really remarkable, I find, you know, how uh, wonderful it is to reflect briefly uh, on the good things that happened to you the day before around the people or something. 
-hmm. it really does lighten the load you know yeah and then to meditate and just reconnect with your yourself and you know calm you know it's it's very powerful and i think you'll agree that it's these very small evolution it's not again we're used to these you know, they have a problem. Let's fix it. It's a huge shift from problem fixed, disease problem to better, fixed, right? Problem fixed. And problem this fixed. is a slow, slow, yeah. slow, like as like a what the, the nerve a millimeter a day. The yeah, 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 yeah. And Regenerating that's kind of what it feels yeah. like. And all of a sudden, you're like, I with I have a 12 year old, and they're super goofy, and and I realized that she's been we've been like cackling, like laughing really, really hard, mm -hmm. and I just realized I hadn't done that since I was a teenager, and. I just, those little things afterwards, I'm like, oh my gosh, you yeah. know, look back, like I've made all this progress to be able to interact in this way and to really feel like, like I can't stop laughing. Like I haven't, yeah. <laughs> so those little bits of joy. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I would have ever gotten to where I am unless I had gone through what I did the last two years. Yeah. Which, so yeah. I'm actually grateful for that. There's so much to be grateful for. And if you get through to the other side of this, that's for sure. You know, and that, but you're also talking about, it's beautiful the way you put it because, you know, gratitude, uh, meditation, you know, unlike exercise where you go out and run and you feel it, it feels good. It's immediate, the immediate impact. And meditation did not feel good when I started. It was just misery, you know, and I'm trying mm -hmm. to count my breaths and I wasn't succeeding. I'm striving and doing all that stuff. And, but then over time, as you said, I mean, you you start to notice there's been a shift and it's subtle and you notice it in these behaviors. Like all of a sudden you're more present with your daughter mm -hmm. and you're, you're giggling because you're just actually in the moment with them. Yeah. And that's when you realize, my God, I have changed. And it was, it was through those various observations and one very powerful one with my son that led me to write the paper, the resilience bank account. And it was, that was my motivation because I realized I had changed dramatically mm -hmm. and I wanted other people to know about the power of these things. So you're absolutely right. Well, do you want to talk about some of the details of how you got into treatment? Sure. I'd, I'd love to, let's, let's hear this kind of I the mean, story and then we'll move into the I don't the like to do the drunkalog, but, but we can. No, no, no drunkalog, you know, but at least yeah. the coverage of the general, the, the salient points. Yeah. Oh, you want me to just go through them? Tell tell your story yeah i mean where you were a very very successful oh, academic surgeon you know grants uh r01s you know all division yeah. had all the goodies and you know and then but <laughs> life wasn't as good in other words the mask was falling off yeah wow um i mean it probably goes back almost four or five years definitely four or five years from now um Right before COVID, I guess, you know, culminating, my career was culminating. Um, you know, I'd gotten multiple grants the same year, extramural funding. And, um, you know, I've been building from that from a research perspective. I became the section head clinically at my in my uh, institution, which was clinically an important leadership position. Um, and then also I was heavily involved in two national organizations, one of which was the Association for Academic Surgery, which I gave a speech for. But what you don't know is sort of the ascension to becoming the president is a long process, meaning yeah. it's, I mean, it's not set in stone. You don't know, but you have to take off other officer positions. And I was the recorder, which is is it's commonly known as the hardest academic job in general surgery because in academic surgery, because of scheduling this huge meeting and everything else that, that it entails. 
Um, and then you could, you know, go through getting elected X, X, Y, and Z. So at the same time, I had gotten a, a leadership position in my Endocrine Surgery Association, for, uh, American Association for Academic Surgery, which I, I also love very much. I was voted onto the, um, the board of the executive council of that group. At the same time, I was the program committee chair, then COVID hit. So there was one, you know, while COVID hit and we, so as the recorder and the program committee chair for those two meetings, when no meeting had ever been done online on Zoom, what is Zoom? Um, I was the person myself and everyone who helped obviously who ran those meetings. So if you can imagine, you know, 30 hours a week, probably doing that stuff. Um, in addition to my clinical, well, whatever it was during COVID, dealing with the stress of COVID, and then also um, trying to maintain everything else, research, um, my kids and my marriage and- um, Keep the house of cards going. Yeah. And, yeah. and um, I I hit I hit the point where I, I couldn't do it all. And I would definitely was not taking care of myself. Um, I really don't want to get into the extent of my, you know, my, my personal life at home, but you know, we, I wound up getting divorced that, during that period of time. And now we've really, we're really <laughs> co-parenting very well. And, and, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but during that time, I didn't realize how, um, you know, change in any major stretch um, was going to impact sort of my my childhood stuff and my coping mechanisms and sort of mm -hmm. all of that was unroofed at the same time. And my way of dealing, I was having um, panic attacks almost every day. I just was constantly like viciously anxious, which in, mm -hmm. in my belief is just covering up depression. It's like anger mm -hmm. is covering up jealousy and other, and other, feelings, I think they're, those are the superficial ones. And I think I, I believe that anxiety is covering some underlying, whatever it is, sadness or whatever it is for you, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. turmoil. Um, but of course I didn't have that insight at the time. And so, you know, I was trying, I was on a bunch of different, and I was already, I knew I had depression. I was seeking, I was seeing therapists. I was seeing, um, a psychiatrist trying different antidepressants. Um, and, you know, then I, you know, alcohol, you know, um, became my soothing mechanism, you know, and I got home from work and that's what I did. And a lot of people do that across the United States yeah, yeah, in yeah, the world. Yeah. Um, and it, it was more just the chronicity of it. And just, you know, then I started like, okay, well, it was almost like a, a need instead of a want. Um, yeah. You make that and, transition. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah a need again to relieve that but the problem is it it's it's um positive reinforcement it makes the depression worse it makes the anxiety worse it makes the sleep worse you're more sleep deprived because of the type of sleep you're getting and, it's a downward spiral it's a downward yeah, spiral and it, on it, all it levels doesn't yeah. it initially was helpful and becomes not helpful after a while yeah and um and I tried to push through it. Like I pushed through everything else and I, there were waxing and waning and people did reach out to me and, you know, told me, you know, I'm pretty tough. Like I got this, I got this, I got this, I'm fine. And lots of other people have been through bumps in the road. And I think people gave me grace and some space because of what I was going through in my personal life. Um, and then I think it got to a point where people were scared that I was going to harm myself. Not, mm -hmm. not I think, mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm really grateful for them for intervening.
Yeah, because somebody did intervene on your behalf, and yeah. that was that the trigger that led to the treatment. A bunch of sur surgeons, actually, close to friends yeah. of mine, surgery, yeah. and um, lucky for you, I was. I was yeah. lucky for me, yeah. and yeah. Um, I didn't feel lucky at the time. I wouldn't say no. okay graciously <laughs> at the time, because you know, I, I was like, I, what have I done? I haven't done anything illegal, you know. No, like, I know that's right. I yeah, All but it wasn't about. They knew things, I yeah. like, yeah. yeah. And they were yeah. right. And so I'm, I'm very grateful to, to those folks and they know who they are. And um, I still continue um, to be on monitoring. And so I'm, you know, every mm -hmm. day I, um, you know, I do a, a breathalyzer three times a day. Most physician health programs have monitoring programs. I volunteered for it, which is, they prefer you do that, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'm on a monitoring program. And so um, I have, you know, I do drug tests every few weeks. I speak to the people at PHS who I have been so supportive in Massachusetts and, um, you know, that they check in with me, my monitors at work, check in with me. My, there are other physicians at work that are sort of checking in on me also. So it's a hardcore monitoring program. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if anyone ever questioned whether or not I was capable of, at least from that perspective, you know, um, right. I, I'm, I'm definitely healthier than, the vast majority of, yes, of yeah. who are currently operating and and not under monitoring. Right, right. What's well, your? I, mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to accuse anyone else. I'm just saying, like, I'm. It's it's you're, ironic you're... that people in under monitoring programs have this scarlet letter of of saying, like, you know, they're, you know, they have a problem. Yet I know that I'm the healthiest I've ever been in my entire life when I yeah, got all the accolades. It's ironic. Yeah. 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 People in yeah. recovery are some of the best people I know. They're in touch yeah. with themselves. They are uh, amazing people. Yeah. Self-aware and yeah, really Honest. remarkable. Honest. Yeah. And uh, I interviewed Anna Lemke too, author of Dopamine Nation, and she talked oh about- Oh my honesty. gosh, I just read that. Did you really? I read it yeah. because you told me she was on. Yeah. I read her yeah. book. I loved it. She's just a wonderful- wonderful woman really a very human book and if anybody out there listening to this is struggling in any way with any form of near addiction or addiction i can't recommend her book highly enough uh, and i hope and one of the things i want to uh, i want to i want to add that's food addiction process addictions whatever it is and um, depression bipolar there are so many people who've reached out to me that said hey this is also really hard to deal with yeah. Um, and so those are all things that, and they're all related to one another. Yeah. So, yeah. What are your thoughts about the monitoring program? Because one of the common feelings is that it feels punitive. I went through all that too. And I had to go down to the county hospital and, you know, pee in a cup and do all that. And mm -hmm. my view, my view at the time was, of course, I need to do that. I mean, they need to be sure that I'm safe as a, yeah. as a physician and a surgeon. So I didn't have any resentment about that. Uh, and I had a very clear experience. I think like you did, the people working in the monitoring program and the physician's health program, you know, they really cared about making this work. But if you didn't play ball, I mean, they weren't going to play ball with you. Uh, so yeah. I felt that there was a good amount of compassion and support. And, you know, it really never got to the board, uh, you know, because of these things. So yeah. what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, I have actually, one of the, um, uh, 
physicians who was in the Chris Bundy, who is he was the past uh, president of the mm -hmm. Federation for Physicians Health Services. So they all have a conference and they they group together and all I want to say 48 states have physicians health programs or health services in, in Massachusetts. Massachusetts is PSH. So um, I think Minnesota is uh, PHP, but it, it's a, each of them, just like everything else in the United States, has a different setup. Um, there is been, has been a lot of movement um, to improve it, to not make it punitive, to have them involved in, and it's true, about 80% of people involved in PHPs are not known to the board. Right. There's also a success rate of people staying abstinent during their contract, 80%. That's in comparison yeah. to less than 20% um, of the general population. Right. And as much as at first I didn't want to do all these, these things, it does keep you accountable. And that sure way one is yeah. distrustful, say, hey, do you want to do you want to see my records here? Like, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, so it kind of takes that off the table and sort of having to prove yourself. Um, yeah. And you have to take it with a grain of salt, like where I go for my drug test, like I have the guy's cell phone. I'm like, I'm headed in now. Like, you know, like, you know, yeah. you're doing it so often, yeah. of course, I'm friends with them, not, you know, friendly. No, with them. no but I mean, I've, I've, I yeah. got to know those people very well. Yeah. <laughs> and and I have yeah. to say, you know, the Physicians Health Service, I'm actually going to be giving a co-talk with Chris Bundy, Chris Bundy at the um, uh, Summit for Physician Health in Palm Desert in, uh, next month to talk about my experience with my PHP, which was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. um, and these are things that people can, can get involved in and, and help um, change if they don't like it or if they don't have one in their state. I think California does not have one. There are in some independent groups that are doing it. So is to find out in your own state what's going on and how that can be improved. It's just like the Lorna Breen, Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation, which I'm now uh, a, a part of uh, the Speakers Bureau, just because I, I they have done incredible work uh, in terms of changing the the wording and or types of questions or in intrusive questions on licensure and credentialing mm -hmm. um, in nearly over, I think over 30 states now. The last time I did my Massachusetts one, um, I was just so um, pleased to see the questions were, you know, it's a question about health altogether, not separating mental health from physical health. Are you capable of, you know, doing what you're supposed to do right now? Yes. Um, it, are you, if you are under, I think it was something to the effect of, are you under a monitoring program? Um, you know, something, I forgot exactly what the question was, then, then you get a sort of, you know, you get a pass. Like if you say right, you're right. The, the program, then, then they're going to, they're not going to delve into that. They're just going to sort of trust. They have a great um, association with the licensing, licensing board from what I understand. And so, and also they had a, a bit underneath that said if resources that if you are struggling, here are resources, mm, right? That's different. People that's fill different that stuff point. out, yeah. right? Yeah. You fill that stuff out. First of all, many people lie, right? Probably. Well, you're, you're sitting in the front of the computer alone, your life yeah. swirling around behind you, you know, yeah. and you, there you're dealing with these questions. I mean, it's really. And they're frankly, they're illegal. We, you know, we're not, they're not yeah, allowed to ask these questions. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, it just took yeah. somebody, it was, it, uh, Lorna's um, sister and brother-in-law were both lawyers and they're like, wait a second, let's do this from a legislative perspective. And they had a federal bill passed for, to look at this stuff and they've been right. really incredible. Yeah. So a lot of changes underway. Do you think uh, the world of surgery is at the point where somebody can say, you know, if, if you're listening to this, I would hope that the, the message would be, gosh, look, uh, the other side of this problem can be like magic. 
Uh, and, you know, the monitoring process, although somewhat painful, totally manageable. We can get mm -hmm. through this and come out really much better. Do you think we're- You have a, a lot more time on your hands. You have a lot more time on your hands, yes. <laughs> You, I leave like I don't I don't stay at parties very long now I'm like okay yeah that's right. dinner. Yeah. I'll see you later yeah. I want to go read yeah. my book yeah do you think we're at the point or getting towards the point where you know people will be less reluctant to 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 take the, the leap you know and help themselves I, I I truly I truly hope so and and I've told you know when I give my talks I give my email out and I give my cell phone mm -hmm. out and I tell people if they have no one else to call to call me and and yeah. And many people have, yeah. um, and obviously I can't sustain that. But I want if if there is no one else in the world, you can put it on the you know it's yeah um, right. at mgh.harvard.edu, and um, I, I it's still very hard for people to take that step. Um, yeah, really what hard. I'm trying to do is jokingly I say I'm going to light a fire. I go to these institutions and I talk about this stuff. And, and then I, I, at least I'm sort of evolved, we're sort of evolving, working with their program directors and their wellness officers and, and their, their larger um, structure for how they handle people and what the resources are to remind people of those resources. Mm -hmm. I truly believe that just bringing it into the, into the grand rounds auditoriums and talking about it, um, I hope, I think it will impact people, even if in any way, shape or form, um, at least they that personal feeling um maybe it lessens that person's shame a little bit because that because shame is is hard and the isolation and the isolation with. sense yeah. of isolation yeah so even yeah. if it's just me saying you know like there are people out here um and giving resources that are anonymous online you know all these things online they can that there's so many meditation tools that are free insight timers free Mm -hmm. All of these recovery meetings are just so many things online where you don't even have to turn your camera on, just be there yeah. and listen to other people yeah. Yeah. and realize that it's, it's not as scary as you think it is to, to share and that people genuinely do not. It is a, a covenant of, of recovery programs that, that what you, what you say here stays here. Stays here. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I want to go through you know, your talk, because you, you went through seven lessons, and I think they're very powerful lessons. And I mean, I, I'd actually recommend people making a little list and hanging it on their, on their computer screens, so they get reminded every day of these lessons, because they, they, I've experienced all of them, and they're absolutely true. So I'd like to just go through them one by one. Sure. And whatever I level of detail. This is fun. Yeah, whatever level of detail you you put first, and so your first one is put health first. What do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, I think so often we, especially surgeons or physicians, and you know, healthcare providers, um, moms, um, dads, mm -hmm. um, caretaker in any way, shape, or form, is that we. I was doing this a lot. Is putting everyone else's well being in front of my own. Mm -hmm including their happiness, or I thought I was. What we don't understand is that, and you hear this whole time, you have to take care of yourself before all these yeah, 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 you've yeah. heard cliches over and over again. It's true. There's but it's actually true. Cliches. It's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or the, and, you put your oxygen mask on first. You know, right, you've heard it a million it's, times. Right? Yeah. There's a yeah. reason things are cliche. Um, but I genuinely, I, I know that by 
opening that gate within myself, this direction, it also opens the gate the other direction. That's right. And it allows me to have so much more um, fulfilling and and um, authentic relationships, especially with the people that matter most to me, which are my children mm-hmm. um, and my family, is to be able to also share with them some of the stuff I said, you know, even my brother didn't know about, I hadn't shared with him. Right. There are a lot of things my parents were didn't know that deeply because I wasn't sharing with them. And so right. um and I'll, you know, and um so I think it is has allowed me to be a, a more, be a caretaker for other people. It's ironic, right? You have it to gives you the energy and the strength to do it. Yeah. In a way that you didn't have before. Yeah. And surgery can it's not you. It can be taken away from you. Yeah. And anything. Anything can be taken Anything. away. Yeah. And you have to develop this inner strength and power and self-esteem to realize that you're still going to be okay. Right. Without external things. And that's a really hard thing to realize and to identify what yourself is as it, different from your thoughts, feelings, and emotions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was alluding to earlier. I mean, what your real self is and who you are and, um, you know, we're all very unique individuals, uh, but you you hit on something that's very important. It's one of your other lessons, but I, I want to get to that. But I want to also note that when you say health, you're not talking about just like exercising. You're talking about the entire well, mostly physical, the mental, health. emotional health, all of it, you know, the whole thing. It's not just getting out and exercising. I just wanted to clarify oh, that. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, yeah. exercise was a, was one of my addictions. I, you know, yeah, I, you were on it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't just. Yeah. I didn't just run, you know, I was like, oh, my bucket list, I need to run Boston, right? I could have joined a team and raised money for something like, nope, I'm going to, I need to qualify. And so mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's right. striving, yeah, qualified and ran a marathon by myself, flew somewhere to do a qualifying race. I mean, in any way, shape or form, is that interacting with another human being? You know, it was mm-hmm, just mm-hmm, completely, mm-hmm. I, I my, it was my Forrest Gump stage. Um, and for me, that's pathologic, right? It's interesting. Uh, Uh, one of the people I also interviewed for the podcast is Rob Cross, and he's the author of the micro stress effect. And, uh, basically people, uh, he, he make, he makes a point that because he's interviewed hundreds of very high performers Mm -hmm. and he calls them 10 percenters. And these are the people that despite the very challenging nature of their lives, they they stay true to themselves insofar as the things that they do with other people in particular. And they're not necessarily striving for the next big objective. So instead of like doing what you did, run boss and go qualify, fly around, do that, they may run with a group of friends and it, they run and they may run a marathon, but it's a group activity. And that this group activities of one form or another with people Mm-hmm. Uh, abrogates the lo- loneliness and the lack of connection and the community of doing things together. And, and that was one of the most powerful things that kept these folks together in the face of all these stressors in lives, you know? So, and it gets back to what you were talking about, you know, loneliness and, and real authentic connections with people. It's a big deal. Yeah. But also, you know, you, you, you alluded to one of your lessons and that is the identity issue. All right. I mean, you're not, you can have surgeon, being a surgeon taken away from you at any point. And 
I mean, you know, because of where I came from growing up in such a challenged environment, then I became a, you know, a, a full professor and all that. It was a miracle. And when I decided not to go back, I mean, I remember standing on the, the stoop with my wife and she did not want me to go back to work. And, and she, I was, I was deathly afraid. I didn't know who I was. I literally didn't know who I was outside of being an academic thoracic surgeon. And I, I said to her, and I, in a moment of real uh, candor and vulnerability, you know, I'm afraid you and the kids won't love me anymore because that's all you've ever known is this surgeon. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? You know, you know, just couldn't believe it. So tell us about being a tennis player and being a surgeon and how that, you know, your profession is not your identity. Yeah. There was an article by Arthur Brooks in the um, mm -hmm. Atlantic, which is an incredible mm -hmm. article that mm -hmm. your profession is not your personality. And I read that when I was um, at uh, PSI in Chicago, which is the second place I went, which is um, really an outstanding uh, uh, place and met very great friends there and um and great therapists um I read that article I was like wait a second you know wait a second like I and it it seems obvious to, at least now when you read it but many I think it's impossible for it to not feel like your identity when you're doing something 80 hours a week for two decades right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it's it's really difficult and in one of the sort of tenets of being you know a physician or is to put you know to do not do harm to others and and all those other things were sort of taught to you need to be in control of your operating room which you do um at that particular period of time but what you don't understand is that the strength the inner strength that you build even now when i have something challenging at work i'm so much more calm and collected when i'm dealing with it i don't i don't take it personally i'm like okay this is an issue that i need to work on or this person is having i'm having this communication with somebody but i don't feel internal, you know, self-flagellation for it anymore. Mm -hmm, I really mm -hmm. don't because I know I'm doing my best and yeah, you know, not, not, I just went off topic there. Identity is a, is a tough, tough. I'm still working on that one. I don't really have the answer to that, but I do know that when you're forced to take some time away from work and you're told you're unfit to practice medicine, you got to think about it. You're forced yeah. to about yeah, it. And yeah. it's scary as hell. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, it was like a rebirth because I was able to separate myself from that. Yeah. Uh, and kind of claim who I was underneath yeah. all of it and figure that out. But now I'm back with surgeons, which I love, you know, yeah. I love. Oh, don't get surgeons. me wrong. I love the one thing yeah. I realized when I was away, I have been trying to build my clinical practice because I, I want to operate more. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I mm -hmm. love operating. I kind of got lost in doing a million other things that I, that I look at, what did you go into this for? It's like people who become yeah. leaders and higher up in the thing. And they, that's not the reason they came into it again. The intention, yeah. what is your end goal? Yeah. yeah. Um, getting yeah. back to that theme, but you know, I don't even know how to verbalize it, but I, I definitely remember like who I was when I was a kid, who I was when I was like that internal, mm -hmm. you know what? I'm fun loving. I'm um, cur very curious. I've been reading up a storm. I realized that I don't necessarily like to be around a gazillion people all the time, like little things yeah, like that. Yeah, that have, yeah. um, and I don't need to be liked by everybody. I'm not for everyone. And um, 
I also don't need, I can set boundaries and I don't, I don't need to, if I'm not feeling comfortable in the situation, I don't hesitate to remove myself from that situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I still remember looking at the computer because I never thought about what my values were, you know, and mm -hmm. I got this long list of values and I had to work through those and really kind of do a deliberate piece, but it was very valuable because it gave me a, a sense of who, what I'm about internally. And that's what's in there. And it's all unique to each of us, you know, and that's who we really are. As you and you also the, see when you do that, did you do the cards, the hundred card thing, the values? No, so there's, no. A, there's a little psychological, you know, there are a hundred cards with different values on them and you rank them. And, and I think now I'm looking back at that part of that process is to realize that you're good. You're a good person internally, unless you're mm -hmm. a sociopath that, mm -hmm. you know, pretty much yeah. everyone has, does have good intentions and you're, you're a good person underneath yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. your behavior and your, your history may not be ideal, but when you look at your values, you're like, okay, this actually does feel important to me, you yeah. know, for people, you know, you know, being available, compassion, all those other things. I think it built, helps build your self-esteem to realize that, oh yeah, I am, I'm, you know, regardless of what I've been doing, that you're not a bad person. Yeah. And if you actually get those in your head, and then you make your decisions around those values, you know, then it becomes very powerful. But that gets that less, lesson two in the list, and that is do not assume anything. We all have different worlds and we come from different worlds. So that's lesson two. What do you, what do you have to yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, that? that's what I wanted to show everyone is that, you know, the assumptions I'm sure people made about me. In fact, there have been people say, oh, when you started your talk, I was like, oh, here we go again. This is how great she is, you know. Mm -hmm. Tennis player will rank all this all right. stuff. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I, in particular, I never, I hate talking about tennis and bragging like at all about myself. I really don't. Now I'm kind of like, yeah, you know what? I did all those things. But yeah. um, I did that on purpose to say like, yes, I know in your minds, X, Y, and Z, but this is how low I got. You know, like I've felt this badly recently, like six months ago, I was in Maria or whatever. Yeah, it was. To show the contrast. Yeah. And people and can make so, really bad assumptions about you based on that. And there are a lot of things that we can't even understand, right? Yes, we could be at Harvard or Minnesota or wherever it is in these national associations, but that doesn't mean that someone's childhood, where they came from, their their environment that they grew up in you know, how hard it was that for them to get where they are, whatever other traumas that, that are, you know, vast majority happened before medical school. Um, you don't know, you just don't know what someone else has been through. So just, right. just give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. They're being angry. They're being difficult, standoffish. Maybe, maybe that's their defense mechanism for something you don't even know about. So no try to be about, as gracious yeah. as you can with people. Yeah. Oh, you know, in surgery, I one of my favorite lines that I hammered residents with that is assumptions are the mother of all fuck ups, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, if you have a fever, oh, it's just atelectasis, right? I mean, but it may not be. Uh, and that is certainly true in, in human beings. And as as we talked about earlier, I mean, what you just said, people come at a point in life with this litany of experiences and programming and everything else and you just don't know the origins of it and so the compassionate stance is to be understanding you don't have to tolerate the behavior but to yeah. be understanding and not make assumptions about their underlying character despite what you see and i don't care 
how much they try. Men cannot understand what it's like being a woman growing up in this world. Someone who's white cannot understand what it's like to grow up yes. being black yeah. in the United States. Yeah. All of those other things, we don't make, you don't know what it feels like. You just don't. Yeah, you and, don't. And you so do yeah. listen, ask, um, but just trust that, you know, people aren't always complaining. Um, they are just fed up sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I guess the bottom line to this is just be curious about them. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just be oh, curious. Yeah, so that'll, that'll, that's another being. one of my, my points. So we'll get yeah. there. Yeah. And then uh, another lesson, mastery is a result of mistakes, not um, perfection. <clears throat> ironically, this is something, you know, as all through all the reading that I came to, or I realized that um, obviously you think a lot about your entire life, not just the immediate mm -hmm. you know, year or so before you wind up in, in, uh, you know, getting treated that I, I thought a lot about that in terms of tennis, right? And that even as I got older, I was driven by a fear of losing and not by a drive to win or to improve. And having perfection be your end goal, first of all, you'll always fail because that doesn't happen, right? Doesn't so happen. it's a constant yeah. state of failure. Yeah. Um, in addition to that, though, to really potentiate in whatever it is, um, music, academics, whatever it is that people that need to develop a, a masterful skill is that you really can't get better if you keep doing things the same way. And, and if you, and you can't make progress without making a mistake or being able to be flexible enough to change a little bit. And I would not do that when I was in tennis. It was very hard for people to get me to change my grip on my backhand, whatever. So I got stuck playing the way I did in the juniors. And I, I didn't evolve as much as I could have. And I could have been a mm -hmm. much better tennis player mm -hmm. had I evolved. The same thing in surgery. I think a lot of times the residents are saying, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to do this. And you're like, well, this is a training program. You're not supposed to know how to do everything right away. Mm -hmm. Give yourself a little grace. Let's work on it. You know, being able to take constructive criticism and get better. But- First of all, on the leadership stance, you can't expect the trainees to know everything right off the bat and to be patient with them mm -hmm. um, because they're working hard and um, also realize that innovation, everything else, it takes stepping outside of the comfort zone a little bit to improve ultimately. I don't know if I explained that very well, but no, but you did. And it's bit by bit and being tolerant of your mistakes and not flagellating yourself i mean you, you you can wish you didn't make it but i mean they are mistakes and everything's experimental and you got to learn and sometimes i mean there are people that are in surgery that may not have the right stuff but by and large you yeah. know most people can learn that are part of the program and, and succeed in a way that is without all the pressure and the, the horrors of the past and the sur the surgeons that listen to this you know i you know it's we all, we all sustain complications in our patients. And, mm -hmm. you know, this concept of moral injury is, is real. And mm -hmm. um, it is at our own hands that this happens. It's hard not to take that personally. Um, but you have to all, all, you can't change it. You cannot change it after it's, it, it, the more you operate, the more complications you're going to have. Unfortunately, we are not perfect. And, um, you do the best you can to take care of people, but realizing that if you learn from your mistakes, you'll be a better doctor the next time. You'll be a better surgeon the next time. If you, yeah. if you're honest about it, whatever it did, work on honest. it. Honest, work be on honest it. Honest about it. Flexible. Work on, 
Yes. Say like, As you okay, said, I need to work grip. on my laparoscopic yeah. skills. Go to the sim lab. I'm yeah. learning the robot right now. And I'm in the sim lab, but they, all the residents laugh all the time because I'm in on the, on the simulator all the time. Um, because I know how to master a skill now, right? Because of 10, all those things are great skills to have learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dedication, yeah. all those other things. Um, but at the same time, you have to give yourself a little bit of grace because um, it's going to happen it personally. Yeah. I really, it's a matter of dedication to improvement rather than rather than perfection. Yeah. And that's, that's really. Oh, one thing I figured out, perfection is for other people. <laughs> yeah. Well, go actually elaborate on it. I want to make sure I interpret, interpret yeah. that. Yeah. So what you're trying to do is have your narrative be per perfect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, that's what causes that external validation. syndrome. Yeah. yeah, external validation. And mastery is that confidence, I think, within yourself that mm -hmm. you know you're good at doing something. Yeah. Like I'm in the sweet spot with my neck surgery. Like I, even if I have a complication, like I am, I I know I'm competent in doing that right yeah, now. Yeah. And um I also know I'm yeah, I, that in the same realm, like I know I'm a good person and I like myself now. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually so much more powerful so than so powerful, else. so powerful. That's one of the most powerful things you've said in this interview. Really wonderful. Really wonderful. Okay, well, you got... see me. I'm gonna ask you. I mean, you saw me. When I saw you at the American College of Surgeons last year, I was only four months out or something. That was the first time yeah. you met me. Don't I seem different to you? Or I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but. No, no. Uh, the difference is is staggering. The energy, the eyes, the sparkle in the eyes. And and I'm not saying this just because we're friends and, you know, we're on yeah. a podcast. Literally, it's like night and day. And you were tense, concerned. If you were in a transition, it was a big deal, but you were grinding through it, you know, and, but the, the difference right now is, is stunning. And it's what you see when you do the work, you know, and really lot, this stuff is, there's a great quote from one of the second victim papers. We teach residents how to operate, but we don't teach them how to live. And, you know, what I really hope your message and your story and these, these lessons and what we're all trying to do is give a basis for teaching surgeons and residents how to live while having a successful and fulfilling career in surgery, you know? Uh, and so this is why your story and your message is so important for, for everyone. Uh, but that was a it side tangent. me a better doctor and a surgeon. Absolutely. Beyond doubt. Beyond doubt. Yeah. Beyond doubt. Beyond doubt. Okay. The last two lessons, authentic connections are everything and just listen. Well, no, there's three and then feel the pain. Wow. Um, so the first thing I would say, I'm going to go to feel the pain first. And, and the reason mm -hmm. the, you read this in all the texts, right? This is yin and yang. This is whatever mm -hmm. it is. Suffering, we all suffer. Suffering is um, optional. No, 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 no. Pain, no, pain. Uh, pain times resistance equals suffering. Right. Yes. Ex That's the you. formula. That's yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so you can't have good feelings without the bad. And um, I think when you numb things, really, some people said, and I even said, like, I don't really feel anything anymore. That's because they've, I think, narrowed their, the negative feelings are trying to combat it so hard that they're also going to, you know, it's like either it's this wide happiness and sadness, or it's like, okay, 
numbness, anxiety. <clears throat> and I had a lot of pain. I just had to feel that I had, hadn't, I, I jokingly say like I had 20 years of pain built up and mm-hmm. man, did that hurt for the first mm-hmm. six, eight weeks. Mm-hmm. I cried every single day for yeah. like I tell anyone yeah. it's easy. Um, and slowly that shifted. It's like, I filled up that tank, like, okay, you've had all these negative feelings. And now like this weekend, I, I wasn't in a great mood this weekend. And, um, and I, but I knew that like, okay, give it a day or two and I'm going to bounce back be gone. direction. Yeah, it's, be gone. it's temporary. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I know how to handle it. So that's the feel the pain. Don't, what were the, was, I can't, it's good that I can't that's, remember my own seven yeah. lessons. Yeah. Authentic connections are everything. Oh. Yeah. There, there are, I, I, I really, um, I spend my time with people like yourself, um, who I know are being honest and being, uh, uh, I assume are honest based on our conversations and authentic, um, because that's, that is in both directions. I think that's meaningful. I think it is known in addiction uh, medicine that connection is, is critical. The, um, the Surgeon General has, has written papers and and uh, the statement that he put out um, uh, has written a book on isolation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. its impacts on physical health. Again, physical and mental health are both health. Um, and of course they're interrelated. Um, and so connection is critical. And I think that's what people get from religion and get from community and going exercising with other people and is having true connections and not just superficial things. I think also surgeons who wind up being leaders or the in this is the hierarchy, which is understandable when you're training people in terms of their skill level. Um, but it's isolating. It's it's lonely at the top, you know, that that other mm-hmm. cliche. Um it's lonely. Um uh I think that that connection, you know, as an, a junior faculty member, you you lost your residence, your cohort. You're not connecting with people as much. Again, you're trying to impress the people you're working with, but still need um, still need. You can't do it yourself. You cannot you cannot get through life doing everything yourself. And trust me, I tried. Yeah, I know. I don't need anybody for anything. Surgeons don't need any other consults. They know how to do everything themselves. Yeah, my my favorite quip is, you know, we have four habits that we learn and well, five, but we learn as part of our training, say yes to everything, discipline to keep going, no matter what, be strong to pretend you're okay, no matter what. And then the other one is, as you just said, self-sufficiency, I don't need help. I can figure this out. Uh, Well, then your final lesson is just listen. And I think this is a good way to kind of wrap up the conversation because what you're talking about here in the talk, I mean, when somebody's struggling, you know, uh, and how to approach that. And I, I think this is part of the challenge that, you know, people had with me when I was addicted at work, you know, they don't know how to approach a challenging thing like that. Uh, and I think there's real need for training and the peer support programs can mm-hmm. really go a long way towards this. But tell us what you mean by that and what somebody needs in a very challenging circumstance like that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting now that I'm on the other side of it and trying to walk through, you know, walk through people, you know, you got to take baby steps because people are, mm-hmm. you're not going to tell someone, Hey, in a year and a half, you're going to feel great. Like right yeah. now, all they think about is the next six hours. Right. And that's yeah. why or even the next hour, right. Next <laughs> yeah. one day at a time. And there's a reason for that. If you start thinking like, 
I can never drink again for the rest of my life. Like that's totally overwhelming to somebody who's yeah. reliant on yeah. it for their, you know, emotional well-being or what they're thinking that it is. So um my my thought with the just listen is that there are sometimes again you don't know where someone's coming from right you don't know what really is bothering them you just have a sense that they're struggling it doesn't necessarily have to be substance use it can be depression and other things and it could be a, a divorce and they're not talking about their personal life i mean it could yes. be all sorts of things problem with a yes. child whatever yes yeah, yeah. yeah. problem with a child man there's been so much mental health issues in, in kids my point being mm -hmm. that you don't need to have any answers you don't need to worry about what you say it doesn't, you know, you're not going to cause them to do anything. If you could cause them to do something, you'd cause them to go get help, right? Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. Cause them to do harm or get worse. So you're not going to, you're not going to make the problem worse. All you're going to do is open the door for them to know that you're there for them. That's right. Do not tell them that they should not be feeling the emotions they are feeling. That is, that is the kiss of death for somebody. That's just going to make them feel shame and that close right up and they're going to isolate and they're not going to talk to anybody. Um, it's just being present. And if at the time they're like, you know, I'm not, if they're safe, if they're, if they're not there to talk, come back again the next day, come back mm -hmm. the next week. Um, check, and in, check in, check in, check in, check in. Yeah. Yeah. Be like, Hey, or, or, you know, I had the, I heard the story recently of a resident that uh, was, <laughs> at our program and I saw her, she's now working somewhere else. And she was talking about one of her co-residents who I saw the next week. And she was having a really hard time in residency. And the, her her co-resident, even though he rode his bike to work every day, be like, hey, can you drive me home from work? I need a ride home. And every day after work for, I don't know, something like a month or something, he, she, she's like, interesting, why is he doing that? And then he would you get to her house and you'd be like, okay, you're home now. You have something to eat. And like, it was, he didn't say anything. He didn't even, didn't say a word about how she was doing, but she has told me that that genuinely saved her life because of yes. that act of yeah. kindness. So you don't that even need to sense. say anything. Yeah. Just, just don't just avoid being there for somebody. Just don't being avoid there for people. Somebody. Yeah, that's right. Get uncomfortable. But, you know, and it's, it's very, it's easy to say, but it's hard, isn't it? At times. Yeah. I mean, especially with a powerful problem like addiction i mean you know it's so difficult i mean it's so uncomfortable and when somebody's struggling with depression if you don't have an experience with it how do you know you know yeah because the empathy triggers can be really substantial but just be hey, present like say, you say i don't understand this i don't understand it yeah how can i help you yes how, how can i help you you know whatever open-ended understanding yeah. yeah that's right Listening is something that I think most surgeons are not particularly good at. I had to learn myself mm -hmm. the hard way. Uh, but once you learn it, it's very powerful for helping with those authentic connections. Yeah. And probably the first time you approach someone, they're not going to be receptive and just no. working on that. No, especially mm -hmm. when you're addicted to something and it's really, you're in a real yeah. crisis. You're yeah. scared. If people yeah. are scared, scared to death, scared losing to death. their jobs, they'll probably yeah. the last thing that they're, they feel they still have. So yeah. Yeah. it's, it's really scary. So just, you know, just keep that in mind when you're talking to them, Yeah, yeah. just keep coming back. Well, Carrie, I mean, I, I appreciate the amount of time you've given to this, uh, but on a much larger level, um, I appreciate so much your, intelligence, emotional intelligence, your courage, uh, because this is a force for change in our entire surgical world and beyond. I hope so. Uh, 
and uh, it's just it's just so crucial what you're doing. I I, my, I can't state it emphatically enough. Just what a big deal. Not it crucial is. what I'm doing. It's crucial that everyone else does something. That's yeah, but we need somebody to light the fire. <laughs> I don't want to take any, you know. You, you don't have to take credit. I'm just saying you lit a certain fire by giving this talk at the AAS, which was a courageous and bold move. And like any leader, you know, if they generate inspiration for change, that's a big deal. And you've done that. And I'm just going to say it again and again, because you have done it. And I appreciate your modesty, but it's the truth. So oh, thank you, Michael. Yeah. And yeah. what you're doing is just the same. You're, you know, you're the OG. You're the one that started talking about it before at the ACS. You were, give, you were going up and talking about your, mm -hmm. your experiences yeah. um, in front of people. So you, you definitely 100% um, gave me strength at that period of time. Cause I was yeah, at that great. point just thinking about, cause that was October, you were raw. six months you were before. Raw. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you doing it, you know, gave me like, okay, I can do this. See, that's the power because when we see others, yeah, you think I, I can do that too, you know, or maybe it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it is okay. And, and yeah. do it if you need it. Yeah. So thank you again, Carrie. Yeah. Really appreciate you. it. Yeah. All right. Take care. This has been the resilient surgeon a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.